Good morning, everyone. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today in the name of Jesus. Though we meet online, we know we are together. As your Spirit binds us as the bodies of believers together, we come in faith, recognizing that you're the great God of the universe, that you rule both heaven and earth. So we approach you with awe and wonder. Whether you feel near or far, whether we are experiencing the pleasures of life or the pain of suffering, we know you are there. We acknowledge your presence and your love for us. We can't begin to comprehend you and your awesome power and wisdom, but we can trust you and know that you do all things well. Lord, we're reaching out to you and we know that you're already reaching out to us. We each need you in our own individual lives. You know us. You look deep inside of us. You see our emotions and our minds. You see our joys and our sorrows. You see our frustrations and our fears. You see our strengths and our weaknesses. You see all our victories and our failures. You see where we've been defeated. And you see where we've failed you. And in spite of all of that, you still love us. And you still want to work out your will and your plans and purposes for us. We pray for those in your church, Lord, that are suffering, that are here, that are hurting, that are sick. We lift up Morag as she continues the recovery from her back injury. And we thank you that that is getting better. We pray that you'll bless her wedding next week, next Saturday, Lord, that it will be a time of rejoicing for her. We're grateful for the improvement that Helen is seeing in her health. And praise be to you for the work that you've been doing there. We pray for Kate as she receives hospital care. We pray that she'll feel your presence by her side and your graciousness at this time. We pray for George as he awaits medical results about his lung. We pray as he waits for those results that you'll give him peace and courage through this waiting time. We pray you hear our prayers for his continued good health. And we pray for Nick. We pray you keep your hand on him and the family as he battles a return of cancer and undergoes treatment. We thank you for sustaining him at this time and continue to pray for his health. There are others too that need the comforting presence of the Holy Spirit. Be with them, Lord. Be their special help for all their needs that they have today. Be with them, encourage and uplift them all. Jesus, as we approach this next stage in the pandemic, we just pray for your wisdom to be with our leaders as they guide our nation in its next steps. We pray for continued low numbers of cases and for your loving care to be with those that are unwell and those that have been impacted by this virus. <clears throat> we know that when we trust in you, we have hope and peace. And we look forward to the day your body of believers can gather again and lift up your mighty name in each other's presence. We pray for your community in the many areas of need and the hope that you offer. We pray that unbelievers will be drawn to that hope. I pray that you will be present as we look at your word. We thank you for your word. I pray our minds will quieten and our hearts will open to your spirit. I pray you will teach each of us what we need to hear today. We pray all of these things 
In your mighty name, Lord. Amen. Before we look at today's passage, it's worthwhile to zoom out and see where this sits in the broader book of Mark. This book, the first to be written of the four Gospels, opens in chapter 1. The very first verse says the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. The book of Mark is all about Jesus. And up front in verse 1, Mark proclaims that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised deliverer of the Jewish nation, as prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures. The first eight chapters of the book teach us about Jesus and the authority that he has. Jesus performs incredible miracles. He's proclaimed that the kingdom of God is at hand and is near. He's demonstrated his authority over sickness, nature, people, and sin. He's been teaching and instructing his disciples, his closest followers, for the work that will be coming uh, shortly. And we see the confession of Peter in chapter 8, verse 29, as he declares that Jesus is the Messiah. And at that point, Mark shifts the focus. Now that we know who Jesus is, he's the Messiah. What did he come to do? We see through this book that all these aspects of Jesus' ministry, they're all building up to one thing. They've been pointing to his ultimate mission, to die for humanity. To die and rise again. That is what Jesus came to do. In today's passage, we see that Jesus is a great servant. We see that his disciples really struggled with this idea of him being a servant. They didn't understand what it means to follow Jesus. Right in front of them is the long-awaited Messiah who is going to redeem and deliver the Jewish people from bondage. In their mind, this deliverance would probably look similar to the stories of Moses, who delivered the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. We've got to remember in, in Jesus' day, the Jewish nation of Israel was, was in, in bondage to Roman rule. They were looking for a redeemer. But the disciples were confused about the mission of Jesus and about what greatness means. If I ask you to conjure up images of becoming great, greatness, being great, what sort of images come to mind? Someone who is able to climb mountains, perform great feats? Someone who is a winner, the first in their field? Someone who has great influence, able to command a crowd? Brands and slogans try and latch on to this idea of greatness. Swimming Australia recently launched their Greatness Starts Somewhere Olympic campaign to inspire that greatness has a beginning somewhere. Uncle Toby's launched their Great Grows Here campaign to inspire parents about their kids' journey to greatness. And of course, we've all heard Make America Great Again. What about great individuals? Well, Muhammad Ali is a famous fighter who often declared, I am the greatest the world has ever seen. He gave himself the nickname, The Greatest. It's unsure whether he was more notorious for his exceptional boxing talents or his ego. There was a story told of Ali on a flight where he refused to wear a seatbelt. 
When confronted by the flight attendant to put on his seatbelt, he replied, Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which she replied, Superman don't need no airplane. Well, it seems even, even the greatest need a re- reality check. Greatness is everywhere. The boasting of those who consider themselves great. The pressure to make ourselves great. It's all around us. And there's no shortage of advice, self-help books, 10-point checklists to guide our journey from zero to hero. We all have this desire inside of us to be somebody, to be doing something meaningful, to have our lives count for something, to make a difference. In a sense, it's a God-given desire to use our talents and abilities for constructive purposes and to make a difference in our family units, our networks, our workplaces, our community, to contribute charitably for those in need, and so on. These are all good things. But how pure are our desires and motivations? Does not our heart yearn for somebody to notice that we're doing good? Does the thought not cross our minds that it'd be good to build up a name for ourselves through the good that we do? This morning, we're going to see what this passage has to say about greatness in Mark. What Jesus says about the path that leads to true greatness. So let's start. Verse 32 sets the scene. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. They are now on their way to Jerusalem. We see three different responses going on here. Firstly, Jesus is leading the way. This would have been a difficult journey to make. Jesus is usually amongst the, the, the group with his disciples, teaching as he goes. But here, he's up front. He's deliberate and purposeful in leading this group to Jerusalem. He's intent on his final, on his final journey and intent on completing what he came to do. As Luke 9.51 describes, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. The disciples were astonished. They'd seen the conflict that had risen between Jesus and the Jewish leaders, the plots that were there to kill him. (coughs) They'd seen Jesus avoid situations that would bring about his death. But now they see his determination to go to Jerusalem, to the very place where these leaders lived. And there were those who followed. They were afraid. This group of people coming along on that journey to Jerusalem, they could see the determination Jesus had on this journey. And they sensed the danger that would threaten them in Jerusalem. I'm not sure if either the disciples nor the followers truly grasped what Jesus was going to face there. Jesus takes the 12 disciples aside and explains to them what will happen to them. Verse 33 and 34. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. This is the third time Jesus had predicted his death. 
The first two are in Mark 8, 31 to 32, and Mark 9, 31 to 32. But this time, Jesus gives us more details about his death, which have not been included in any prior announcement. Jesus will be humiliated. He'll be handed over to the Gentiles. That's humiliating for a Jew. They will mock him. They will spit on him. They will flog him. In describing what is going to happen, Jesus doesn't alleviate any of the fears or concerns that the disciples may have had. He's just confirmed Jerusalem is a dangerous place. In Mark 8.31, Jesus said he would be rejected by the priests and the scribes. But here in 10.32, they will also condemn him to death. Now condemn is a legal word. It indicates he will be tried and executed by a court. He's not simply going to be murdered or killed by a private person or party. And the word delivered or betrayed as it comes up in other translations, it hints that he will die for crimes that he didn't commit. Jesus will be a victim of injustice. Jesus has just told his disciples that he will die and rise again. But as Luke 18.34 tells us, the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. This would in part explain the very strange response from James and John in, in this passage. In verse 35 to 37, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Jesus has said he is going to be rejected, humiliated, beaten and killed. But James and John, completely missing the point and lacking any sort of sympathy or empathy, he asks the equivalent of, Jeannie, I want you to grant me a wish. We might wonder, did they really hear anything that he said? Or did they actually hear and believe his statement that he would rise on the third day? And on that basis, bring their request. This request may seem strange to us, but in the minds of the disciples, it made perfect sense. See, in, Ma in Matthew 11, verse 28, it recounts something that Jesus had said just a few days earlier. Verse 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. See, in the disciples' mind, as they walk up to Jerusalem, they believe there's going to be thrones waiting for them. Jesus had said that he was going to Jerusalem, his kingdom would be established, and they understood that this would be the final showdown between Jesus and the authorities that opposed him, that Jesus would ultimately prove triumphant and he would begin reigning. And if he reigned, Jesus is going to need some deputies and it would be far better to be second and third in command than 11th or 12th. This desire for greatness is deep within the heart. Many who have been honoured, many would have been honoured even just to have a throne, even if it was the hundredth, 
But here, James and John want the prime spot. How does Jesus respond? Does he say, what's the matter with you guys? No. But he does tell them that they've got it entirely wrong. There in verses 38 to 40. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup and you will be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with. But to sit at my right and my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those whom they have been prepared. Jesus' response is that they are ignorant of the cost and the price of what they ask. Jesus is already on the way to glory and is ready to pay the price. And he employs some imagery to help us understand what he is about to face. The cup and the baptism refer refer to the fact that Jesus is going to bear the wrath of God on the cross. Both the cup and the baptism in the Old Testament refer to ordeals and suffering. The cup in the language of the prophets, refers specifically to the wrath and justice of God against sin. Isaiah 51, 17-23, says the cup of his wrath, the goblet that makes people stagger. And Jeremiah 25, 15-17 says, Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. It's very interesting that Jesus mentions the cup just after he teaches that for the first time his death will be a judicial one. The cup is the wrath from the just judgment of God on human evil. And Jesus will be judged by a court and receive judicial wrath from Pontius Pilate. Jesus' human judicial experience is a parallel to the divine judicial experience of God's wrath poured out from the cup. Baptism means to be flooded with something. Baptism, of course, can have a very positive meaning, but because Jesus pairs baptism here with a cup, it has a negative connotation. The flood of Noah was a sign of God's wrath on the world. To be overwhelmed and submerged by a flood is a sign of judgment. But baptism, unlike the image of cup, contains an aspect of hope. Baptism means to pass through an ordeal. A baptism is to go under the waters and emerge again. Romans 6, 3-4 tells us baptism is like a death and resurrection. Verse 3, don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. The baptism here hints to a hope, a hope that will come when Jesus rises again in three days. Jesus says the cup and baptism are the price of glory. When Jesus asks John and James if they can take this cup and this baptism, he seems to imply that what they ask is impossible. You don't know what you are asking, he says. Can you drink the cup I drink? The question is rhetorical, meaning that no one could possibly experience what he was going to experience. 
Jesus does tell them, you will get this cup and baptism. On one hand, obviously, James and John couldn't bear the actual cup of God's judicial wrath. That would have simply destroyed them. And that's the very thing that Jesus came to avoid. He came to take the cup so that we didn't have to. But on the other hand, to follow Jesus is to become servants and to suffer. Our lives will be conformed to his. Jesus is the kind of Messiah that wins by losing power and serving others. And if we are his followers, then our lives too will have this pattern. And as it turns out, this is what James and John experienced. James was the very first of the apostles to die, as recorded in Acts 22. He was beheaded by Herod. He was the first of the apostles to be martyred. John was the last. These two brothers formed a kind of bookends of apostle martyrdom, within which all the apostles, each turn by turn, were put to death for the sake of Jesus. And so in the end, Jesus granted part of their requests. They did drink from the cup. But Jesus goes on to explain he could not grant their other request. As it is not mine to give, but it will be given. Somebody will sit there, but the Father will determine who it will be. The Father will use his definition of greatness and prepare a place for those that he determines. Now, when the other ten disciples of Jesus heard about what James and John requested, they were indignant. The other disciples were angry with James and John, and we get the sense that this is a request that the other disciples wanted to make also, because Jesus has to now teach what true greatness is. Verse 41, 42. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. People behave in a certain way in this world. They have, pe- they have positions of authority. They lord it over others, which means to act in a way that shows one thinks one is better or more important. They exercise authority over others. They tell others what to do. They abuse their power. They use their power for their own selfish purpose. They use their authority to get their way. But in verse 43, Jesus says, Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. In verse 44, whoever wants to be first must be a slave to all. Among us, it is not to be this way. We do not act like those who selfishly use power. We do not use our power to oppress others or to use authority for selfish purpose. We do not lord it over others. Biblical greatness is not bossing people around and it's not forcing people to do something. Rather, greatness comes by serving. Serving is the key to greatness. Jesus says that when you're willing to give yourself to meet another person's need, something remarkable is going to happen. Without your even wanting it, you establish a strange kind of authority in that person's life. They want to respond. Their attitude changes towards you. They want to do something in return. They don't have to, but they want to. People respond in kind and in some way. And Jesus is saying this is the principle of the kingdom of God. This is the way authority rises. 
Greatness is through serving, not through stepping on others to get to the top. Followers of Jesus use their authority to serve others because that's the example of Jesus' actions. In verse 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In this statement, we have finally given some insight into the purpose and the reason for Jesus' death. For the first time, we're told why he had to die and what his death actually accomplished. If Jesus, Lord over all creation, did not come compelling others to serve him, but instead he came to serve and give his life for others, then we must follow in his example of servanthood. We may think we've achieved greatness when others serve us or do what we want. But true greatness is giving ourselves to others, serving them, giving our lives to them. And we do need to consider, did Jesus come only to serve those who loved him and did good by him? No, Jesus served the whole world and died for the world, even though the world despised and rejected him. We sometimes try to qualify our service and giving of others. We give ourselves to people who agree with us, love us, are nice to us, or like us. But we have to remember that we're also called to serve our enemies. We're called to serve and give our lives for others. Jesus paints a picture here that he is a ransom. A ransom is the price for release. We use that word when we talk about kidnapping. When someone's been kidnapped, the price of release for that person is the ransom price. The price that set us free from death, from sin, and to bring us to glory, that price was Jesus' own life. Isaiah chapters 52 and 53 speak of a servant who would come and pour out his life to death and suffer for the many. Jesus' death was not for his good, it was for ours. He gave his life to set us free. And ransom also implies a change in the dynamic of a relationship. Someone liberated owes the liberator his or her life. If you were kidnapped and someone paid your ransom, you'd feel indebted to that person for saving your life and would probably do anything that that person asked. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, You were bought at a price. Jesus has purchased us. Jesus has paid our ransom. And we are indebted to Jesus. And what is he asking us to do? He's asking us to serve others. Which brings us to the final scene. Here in our passage, verses 46 and 47. Then they came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Continuing on the journey to Jerusalem, they came to this town of Jericho, where a blind beggar was sitting on the roadside. We're given the beggar's name twice, but... This beggar is actually nameless. Bartimaeus literally means son of Timaeus because Bar is Aramaic for son. So Bar Timaeus is son of Timaeus. 
And we see that in, in other places like Bartholomew, Bar Jesus, or other people that are mentioned um, in the New Testament. So we don't actually know Bartimaeus' name. This beggar is simply known as son of Timaeus. And Timaeus is probably someone that the town would have known. But then Mark makes a point here, explaining there in brackets that Bartimaeus means son of Timaeus. Which is extra information and, and a little bit redundant because the readers would have understood Bartimaeus is son of Timaeus. Why did Mark do this? Well, perhaps he literally just wants us to know how Bartimaeus is translated. Or perhaps he's making a point. You see, Timaeus in Greek means honour, honouring, respect. And this story follows the previous. Mark is pointing out a contrast in the attitude of the disciples and of this beggar. In their spiritual blindness, the disciples asked for honour and greatness and failed to see who Jesus was. In his physical blindness, Bartimaeus, son of honour, asks for mercy. And how does this blind beggar see Jesus? He sees him as the saviour of the world. In his blindness, he's seeing something that the disciples weren't able to properly comprehend and see. Bartimaeus cries out the title Son of David, and that's a title for Christ, for Messiah. God promised that the Messiah would come from a descendant of David. This blind beggar is recognising that Jesus of Nazareth is actually the saviour of the world. And this is why the crowd was telling him to be quiet, because the title Son of David has profound meaning. And in an environment where the Jewish leaders are already at flashpoint, yelling out, Son of David, Son of David, could have been the spark that just set everything alight. In verse 48, many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. This beggar is really getting the treatment from the crowd, being rebuked and told to shut up. But Bartimaeus won't let anything come in the way between him and Jesus. He recognises that he has a need and he continues to shout out to Jesus. And we see the compassion of Jesus in verses 49 to 52. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the beggar man, to the blind man. Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Everyone there is telling this man to be quiet, that he's not worthy of Jesus' time. But Jesus stops and calls for this man. Bartimaeus throws off his cloak, which would have been his only possession. And someone who is homeless rarely lets go of their one or two possessions. But Bartimaeus throws off his cloak. He leaves behind all of his possessions and he goes forward towards Jesus because what Jesus has to offer is much better than what he has. Jesus asks Bartimaeus the same question that he asked James and John. What do you want me to do for you? When James and John came to Jesus with their request for greatness, they were blind. They could not see what was involved. They wanted something, but didn't see what that was connected to. They could not see the cup, the baptism, the humiliation, 
the cross. They were blind. Jesus asked in both cases, what do you want me to do for you? The blind beggar asks for sight. Jesus says to him that his faith has made him well and his sight is restored. And then he too follows all of them as they head into Jerusalem. Bartimaeus follows Jesus. Two different responses to the same questions. The disciples want greatness. Bartimaeus wants mercy and displays the right response to Jesus. His faith is persistent. He continually cried out to Jesus. He was willing to be mocked and humiliated for his faith by those around him. Jesus showed compassion. Jesus served Bartimaeus. And what was the response? Bartimaeus follows him. He didn't have an obligation to do so, but he willingly did so. Jesus didn't need to use authority. Jesus served Bartimaeus. When you, when you serve someone, there is a response. And that response is far greater than any order from any authority that could be given. Service produces a willing response. And friends, I would encourage us all to evaluate our perspective of greatness. True greatness is humbly serving others for the glory of God. To be great in God's eyes is to serve others. That means anyone can be great. All of us can be great since service is a choice. And it's a choice that we can all make. Friends, what do you want Jesus to do for you? If Jesus comes to you and you get your request, what do you want Jesus to do for you? Will you remember what he did for you? Will, will you remember the ransom? Will you remember the way he acted? Will you remember his, his lowless moment when he became lower than all and he died, bearing the sins of all? Will your answer to the question, what do you want Jesus to do for you, be like that of the disciples or like that of Bartimaeus? What sort of request would you give to Jesus? I'm going to read Psalm 119, verses 122 to 132, as we think about that question. Ensure your servant's well-being. Do not let the arrogant oppress me. My eyes fail, looking for your salvation, looking for your righteous response. Deal with your servant according to your love and teach me your decrees. I am your servant. Give me discernment that I may understand your statutes. It is time for you to act, Lord. Your law is being broken because I love your commands more than gold, more than pure gold. And because I consider all your precepts right, I hate every wrong path. Your statutes are wonderful, therefore I obey them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. Turn to me and have mercy on me, as you always do to those who love your name. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, help us to understand what true greatness is. Thank you for giving us your Son, who willingly took on insults, rejection, torture and death, so that we could have life, so that we could be joined back into a relationship with you.
Thank you for the hope that comes because of the death and resurrection of your son. A hope that guides us in good times and in uncertain times. We pray that our requests of you will be pure. And we ask for your continual teaching as we grow in understanding of your love and purposes. We pray this, Lord, in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.